children may be dismissed to junior church. And I invite all of you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter uh, 4. We're going to be going there here in just a moment, Genesis 4. And let me ask, is Jesus the center of your life? Is Jesus the center of your life? Now, none of us are perfect, but I pray that we're trying to pursue Jesus with our life, live with Jesus. We call that uh, perseverance in the faith. You know, I believe our salvation in Jesus is certainly uh, the, the, the one-time event of certainly Jesus' death on the cross and also the moment that we commit our life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, the moment that we surrender to him as Lord and Savior, we are saved but there's also a continual action of persevering in the faith. You think of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Does Jesus tempt us? Anybody can answer that. It's, no, Jesus doesn't tempt us. But you know, the Greek word for test and tempt is the same Greek word. And we do know that the Lord will test us. The Lord will test us. And in a test, we want to pray that we are victorious and that we do not let that test become a temptation. But what else does it say? Deliver us from evil. Are we praying nightly in our nighttime prayer, in our morning prayers, throughout the day? Lord, don't let me, don't let me go into evil. Lord, don't let me fall into temptation. Lord, I need your strength. Lord, I cannot do this on my own. I need the Holy Spirit's strength in my life. Are you praying? Are we praying? I, I got to apply this to myself too. Are we praying, Lord, I'm going to be going in this meeting. I'm going to be with this family member, or with this friend, or with this coworker, or this colleague, or this neighbor. And oftentimes I know they get a rise out of me and I get angry and I say things I shouldn't say. I erupt. I get angry. Lord, stop me. Lord, give me the fruit of gentleness. Are we praying? Nightly, Lord, make me wake up a Christian tomorrow. It's interesting because my friend John Piper, he's not really my friend. He's my podcast friend, and I read his article, read one of his sermons this morning um, he, alongside my friend Chuck Swindoll. Uh, my friend John Piper once said in one of his writings, do you pray that the Lord wakes you up as a Christian tomorrow? See, that's kind of surprising come from John Piper because, you know, he's known as a strong Calvinist. If you know anything about that, if you don't, don't worry about it. You know, and he's known that way, but he believes we have to persevere in the faith. We have to keep on keeping on. We have to keep on following Jesus. And I talk to some people who believe they can lose their salvation. Um, they can walk away from God. And, and I don't plan on talking about that today, uh, except as they look at their life or at least their church commitment, they don't live that way. And I'm like, if you believe you could lose your salvation, I would think you'd be here for Sunday school, for Bible study, for worship. You would, you would be saying penance and whatever else because you do not want to lose your salvation. Now, I don't necessarily believe you can lose your salvation, but I believe what we do declares who we belong to. And so in our persevering with the Lord and our persevering with Jesus, it's showing we belong to Jesus. And if we live in unrepentant sin and we just don't care, after a period of time, it might declare, I don't belong to Jesus. So pray that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, helps you persevere. And I want to ask again, is Jesus the center of your life? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself and make sure you are in the faith. How do you examine yourself? I think we look for the fruit of repentance. 
that if we erupt at somebody and talk negatively to them, even sarcastic, even a one-up comment, then we realize the Holy Spirit convicts us and we think, why did I say that? I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. We repent to them. We repent to God. Maybe we miss an opportunity to share our faith. I just finished this wonderful book called Tactics. Uh, two weeks ago, I finished it. Um, Tactics about having conversations. And the guy talks about uh, the Columbo effect. Y'all remember Columbo? I mean, a lot of you watch Columbo, right? Columbo was a pretty good show. He had that old raincoat he always wore. And he would kind of play dumb. And he asked lots of questions. And he'd be investigating a scene. And he'd start to walk away. Then he'd come back and be like, oh, just one more thing. And you thought he was a dummy, but he was putting together the case. In the book Tactics. He encouraged us to talk about our faith that way, asking questions, not not being dumb, but asking questions. When you ask questions, it brings their defenses down. It gets them to talk about, you know, why they have whatever belief they have. And he does a great job talking about that. He calls it putting a stone in their shoe. See, I think a lot of times, you and me too, but especially you in this incident, you get discouraged. It's just the truth. You get discouraged because you think in order to talk about your faith, you have to make it through a whole gospel presentation. But I think we are doing what God calls us to do if we just have a spiritual conversation. And in fact, uh, Greg Kokel, I think his name is, he, he writes that in the book Tactics. He calls it putting a stone in their shoe, making them think. You know, God might provide a five-minute conversation and you can tell real quickly, it's not a divine appointment after that. And you need to walk away. And then God, and you planted a seed. And God will leave some, lead somebody else to go and nourish that seed, water that seed. It's not our job to force it. It's our job to obey God. And it's a victory just having a spiritual conversation. If Remember, we had uh, Doug, Doug Pollock talk, talk about God's space a few years ago. That's the idea of a spiritual conversation. Encourage yourself. And you know what? Back to what I was talking about, perseverance in the faith. There might be times where the Holy Spirit convicts you that you should have had a spiritual conversation and you shirked that responsibility. Those are things when we examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. Do we care about salvation enough to talk about it with other people? And you're excited about something you talk about, right? I mean, if your son or daughter just won a competition about the ba- a basketball game or something, a lot of times you'll say the next day, yeah, my child really loved the basketball game. Well, are you excited about your faith in Christ? You know, we just got over COVID. And the night that Megan tested positive, Mercedes really quickly realized she was going to have to quarantine for possibly 15 days. And she was going to have to miss the final basketball games. And she's just crying and crying. And she's saying, you're ruining my life. (laughs) You're you're ruining my life. Seriously. And uh, then uh, Abigail had a light cough, so we tested her. And they were so excited to be positive for COVID. (laughs) They really were. Five days and they were better and they were back in the world. You know, she was excited to play basketball. Are we excited about the gospel? Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do we pray that? Is Jesus the center of our life? And now my object lesson. Timothy Burns gets things from his brother who goes to antique stuff. And he gives me this today and he, and he, and he gives me a quiz. And it wasn't prepared for the quiz, but he gave me a quiz. Thanks, thanks Timothy. He says, what, you know, what do you, what, what's your first guess? I said, maybe, maybe a little thing for ointment or oil or something like that. And then he gave me the answer. Thank you, Timothy. Um, 
It's a communion little vial, vase, something. And, and you can see there's a cross on it. And then there's a little shepherd's hook going through the cross. There's a star on it. And there's little six little points at the top to help pour oil. There's a, um, a, a, a little um, wheat, a little th- thing that represents wheat, a shaft of wheat on it as well, which would represent, you know, Jesus is a bread of life. And all these things are on this little thing, which Timothy taught me about. Thank you, Timothy, about, you know, how this revolves around the cross, revolves around our, you know, our savior. So that if we're serving communion, we're reminded of the cross and the shepherd's hook and the bread and Jesus, the bread of life and in all this symbolism, you know, here. And that segues us to Genesis chapter four. Is Jesus a center of our life, like Jesus in the gospel is a center of this communion um, picture? And I want to show Jesus is the center of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is pointing to a savior. We're going to look here in a second about Cain killing Abel. And at the end of this chapter, the end of Genesis 4, Eve rejoices that God provides another baby. Eve rejoices that God provides the baby Seth. And you look at it and you think, maybe Adam and Eve were concerned that with that first murder, there's less of a chance that God's going to provide a savior. In Genesis 3.15, we talked about that a few weeks ago. In Genesis 3.15, we see the first prophecy, the proto-evangelism, the first prophecy of a Savior, that God is going to provide a Savior. We see God's grace in the midst of judgment. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, you sin. Yes, they sin. Yes, sin has entered the world. Yes, everything has changed. But God is going to provide a Savior to buy the seed of the woman which would be Jesus. God's going to provide a savior. And we see in the naming of the people, even the naming of Noah at the end of Genesis chapter five, in the naming of the people, we see they're looking for a savior. They're looking for a redeemer. Maybe this one is going to be the redeemer. The whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And I am to make the case as I continue this series of Genesis chapters one through Genesis chapter 11 of the significance, the importance of these chapters in the Bible. They are foundational to our faith. They do not read like myths or allegory or fiction. They are real. They are accurate. They are important to our faith. They are foundational to our faith. And so as we look at Genesis 4, remember that. I read this. In 1991, two hikers in the Italian Alps stumbled upon a 5,300-year-old corpse that would later be dubbed Otzi the Iceman. A corpse 5,300 years old. Preserved for more than five millennia in the ice and dry mountain air, Otzi is the oldest intact corpse ever found. Forensic investigation revealed that Otzi was most likely a shepherd. Otzi was also a murder victim. He had been shot in the back with an arrow. As a Bronze Age shepherd who became a murder victim, we might think of Otzi as the Abel of the Alps. He's the Abel of the Alps. In other words, the oldest human corpse was not found resting in a peaceful grave with attendant signs of reverence, but sprawled upon a bleak mountainside with an arrow in his back. It's a distressing commentary on the origins of human civilization. It seems that human civilization is incapable of advancing without shooting brothers in the back. From the lonely death of Ossie in the Italian Alps to Nita Aga Sultan 
in Iran, whose violent death in Tehran during the 2019 election protests was captured on a cell phone camera and witnessed around the world. The number of Abel's who lay slain by a cane are incalculable. In a world that spills the blood of the innocent, it's easy to spare. But the world, the world Abel and Otzi were slain in, Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save. And interesting, here we are looking at this passage on the week after the largest land invasion, multiple sources I've heard say, since World War II. And we look at things and we think, why do people do the things they do? Well, those answers are in Genesis. Literally, we are a fallen, depraved people in need of a savior, in need of redemption. In Genesis 3, we have the devil slithering around as a serpent, talking, tempting, and distorting the truth. And Adam and Eve fall into sin. Then we come to Genesis 4, and we have a description of sin as an animal crouching in the door with a desire to overtake an individual. What an image. Sin's desire is to overtake. Crouching, ready to pounce. In Genesis 3, we have the why. The why. Why do these bad things happen? Why sin? In Genesis 4, we have the what. The what. What is happening that is sinful? Genesis 3 gives the cause. In Genesis 4, the effect. The cause, the effect. Sin causes murder. In Genesis 4, we have this picture of sin wanting to overtake Cain. Like a snake, a lion, a bear, crouching, ready to pounce. When Cain gives in to sin, it does not stop with him. This is life outside of paradise. Before we move into this passage... Keep your thoughts on Genesis 4. I don't want to distract you. But I need to say thank you for all those that spoke last week. It was a wonderful worship service. Thank you for speaking last minute. And my thanks to the praise team putting together a wonderful worship service um, last minute. So I really, really appreciate it. I should have said that in the beginning. So ADHD moment over. So back to Genesis 4. We're not going to read this whole passage. A few years ago, I preached on Genesis 4. So I want to emphasize a few verses and summarize some other things and and maybe give you a different spin on Genesis 4. Uh, But first, let's read a New Testament passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may able to be able to endure it. There's nothing new under the sun. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He can provide a way of escape. One of the most famous sins in the Bible, King David. He looks out his window. No, actually, he's on the roof. He's on the roof. In the days when kings usually go out to war, he stayed home. He looks out on the roof. He sees Bathsheba bathing on another, somewhere, another roof. And he goes and gets his servant. And he says, who is that? And she says, Bathsheba, the wife of 
I think God was providing, God was providing a way of escape for David. There should have been bells going off here. That's Bathsheba. She is the wife of. There's a way of escape. There are numerous things where God is providing a way of escape from temptation that you do not have to go in, go through with the temptation. Look at Genesis 4, 6 to 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must roll over it. God himself is talking to Cain. And God himself is saying, you can roll over it. You have the ability to roll over this sin. You do not have to go through with it. He did not have the Holy Spirit. You're here and you're in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to roll over sin. God wants us to be victorious Look at verse 8, Genesis 4, 8. God spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I think that's, at least as I restudied this passage for this message, I was convicted of how sad, so very sad that verse is. We're going to skip to the end of chapter 4 in verses 25 through 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. My theme is the significance of Genesis 4, life after paradise, the people leave the garden. The significance of Genesis 4, life after paradise, the people leave the garden. Any of you read Paradise Lost? Any of you? I thought Lynn probably had. And I saw another hand. It might have been Georgian. Yeah, Paradise Lost. Uh, and Blaine has too. One of the longest poems in his, you know, English poems. One of the most sold. And I thought of Paradise Lost as not, not exactly a direct one-to-one correlation, but just the title as I was thinking through this message, as a, hopefully the Holy Spirit was leading me in this message, the people leave paradise. How did we get here? So at the end of Genesis 3, God sent man and woman out of the Garden of Eden. They send them out of the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve have sinned. They have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, and they have the tree of life. The tree of life is how they will live forever. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said not to take of. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life will be in the new heaven and new earth. In fact, in Revelation 22, we see the tree of life on both sides of a river in the new heavens and new earth, showing that is how we will live forever, the tree of life. I've talked and heard from different people. You know, uh, somebody referred this doctor to me uh, um, on YouTube from Harvard, and he said, we have this new medicine. You can buy it on YouTube, and it, it prevents cellular death. We might be able to stop cells from dying. I don't think that's going to happen until you get the tree of life. They referred it to us. We got it. Megan tried it for like a year or two. It did not heal the multiple sclerosis, so at least in that case, it did not work. We're willing to try anything, but, you know, it didn't work because we are in a sin-cursed world. We are in a fallen, depraved world that happened from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's another answer that is in Genesis. What is wrong with the world? Sin entered the world and in sin came death, but we need the tree of life. And many times we don't, we don't get this. It was God's grace sending them out of the Garden of Eden because 
after sin entered the world, they could take from the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. And that would be horrible. It's bad enough living 100, 110 years, isn't it? You know, we see the harm that people can cause. Imagine living forever in a sinful state. So God, in his grace, sent them out of the Garden of Eden. They're out of paradise. And we come to Genesis 4. In Genesis 4.1, Adam and Eve had children. They named them Cain and Abel. They both make sacrifices, and God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. There may be reasons, and many speculate, why was God pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's? And my best solution to that is Abel gave of the first fruits, and Cain did not. Some would say that it's because uh, Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was not. But later on in the law of Moses, we do see, you know, where you could give sacrifices of the wheat and the harvest and things like that. It seems that Abel's heart was giving it to the Lord out of the first fruits. God speaks to Cain. We read that. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must roll over it. There was a way out. There was a way. But he did not. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. They have left paradise. And now paradise has left them. Murder. They had sinned in Genesis 3. And the consequence of the sin is spiritual death and physical death. They needed a redeemer, but God has not yet provided the redeemer. They are out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived a long time. Adam lived 930 years, according to, to Genesis 5.5. So we do not know how old Cain and Abel were at this time. There is some speculation that Cain and Abel might have been adults. It might have even had children by now, you know, because of, of, their, of, of how old Adam and Eve lived. But as I thought of this, I was convicted to think about this from Adam and Eve's perspective. Think with me. Allow yourself to get emotional with the passage. Have you ever gotten yourself in a pickle? Have you ever wished that you could be a do-over, get a do-over? Have you ever wished that, have you ever wondered how something was going to get taken care of after a big mess? Maybe something was irreparable. You've all probably heard the toothpaste analogy. You can't put it back in the toothpaste tube and you can't put your words back once you say something. We all know what it's like when family relationships are divided. For many of us, we wish that we could take the words back. We wish we could take the the actions back. We may wish we could make the phone call to repair things or write the letter or knock on the door. Damage has been done. We, we know what it is like when things seem perfect or almost perfect, and then we lose it. Maybe we did not realize how good we had it. Then we always wonder, what if? What if? Have you ever been in an argument and you eventually pause and you think, oh, I've done a lot of damage in this argument. I've said a lot that I shouldn't have said. I'm going to have to repent. I'm going to have to make restitution. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to say I did not mean it. I wonder if after Cain killed Abel, Adam Adam and Eve were thinking, what if we did not eat of that tree? They have left paradise. Paradise has really come to fruition leaving them. What if we did not eat of that tree? 
I wonder if after Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve were wondering where they went wrong. More than that, I wonder if after Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve are so emotionally distraught that they did not know what to do. See, I think it's so easy to read over this passage and skip over the emotions of the text. Murder is wrong. Murdering your own sibling is certainly not supposed to happen. This is the first sibling rivalry. This is the first jealousy recorded. This is the first anger recorded. This is the first murder recorded. But Adam and Eve's emotions were not recorded. The murder is recorded. The jealousy is recorded. The anger is recorded. The rivalry is recorded. But Adam and Eve's emotions were not recorded. If Adam and Eve had a journal, what would it read? I imagine Eve running to Cain and letting out a blood-curdling scream, shouting out, what have you done? What have you done? What have you done? As she pounds her fist on Cain's chest. chest. Then I imagine Eve going to Adam. What would she say to Adam? Was it, you should have intervened? Why weren't you there for him? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you teach him about first fruits? Well, what did Eve say to her husband? Or did they grieve together? Studies show that after the loss of a child, most marriages do not last. Because no matter what, they blame each other. We don't know what their thoughts were. We do have a little bit of a hint in Genesis 4, 25 to 26. We'll come back to that. But this is life after paradise. I wonder if Adam and Eve are realizing this is a new normal. Adam lived 930 years, as I said. So he saw a lot of suffering in his descendants. They saw it all. But what about Cain's descendants? Look at Genesis 4, 17 through 26. I'm just going to summarize some parts of that. What was life outside paradise like? We will not read the next several verses, but allow me to summarize a few key insights about life outside of paradise. In verse 19, Lamech starts polygamy. In Genesis 2.24, Adam marries one wife, but now Lamech has two. Genesis 2.24 says that a man is united to his wife, not wives, They are very fallen. In verse 21, we see musical instruments, the pipe. In verse 22, we see iron and bronze. This means significant advances. In verses 23 and 24, we have more murder. Lamech was protected like Cain. Notice that these are all real records. These do not read like fictional myths or allegory. They are records. They may skip a generation or two and not include everyone, but they are records. Adam and Eve sinned, and now they are in life after paradise. And life after paradise is fallen, and it is depraved. When we disobey God, there are consequences. We must obey God's ways. That's Genesis 4, 7. We see jealousy here in verses 4 to 5. We see anger in verses 4 to 5. We see murder in verse 8 and 23. We see revenge in verse 14. We see polygamy in verse 19. We see all of these things happen in the very following chapter right after they leave paradise. Where did Cain get his wife? Genesis 5, 3 says that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. He lived another 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. 
Cain married his sister? Yes. Now, there is a belief, I don't believe it, I think there are some problems with it, that Adam and Eve were one specific family that God spotlights, and so there were more people, and Cain's wife was from other people. But there's a problem with that. Remember, a few weeks ago, I preached on the first Adam, second Adam. In Adam, all die. From Adam's descendants, all die. So that in Christ, all can be made alive. We have to be descended from Adam to be made alive. We have to be descended from Adam to experience the forgiveness that Christ offers. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is about that. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then Romans 5.18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to purification and life for all men. This is why Genesis is so significant. This is why Genesis is so important. We get our fallenness, our depravity, our death from Adam, descended from Adam. And we get our salvation from the second Adam, which is Jesus, who fulfilled all the prophecies. Jesus paid the price of sin from the line of Adam. Plus, the New Testament seems to show that Adam's sins trickle down to all humanity. God is faithful. He provided a redeemer. To be saved, all humanity must go back to Adam and Eve. Now, how does this biologically work? In a nutshell, Adam and Eve would have been created perfectly. Their genetics were perfect. So at this point, that would not be a problem. But the longer human beings are in this sin-filled world, their genetics got worse. And the closer people are genetically related, the more likely deformities would come. But that wasn't, that wasn't a problem at that point because they were created perfectly at that point. Now, did the law forbid marrying a sister or relative? Yes. But that was later. That was in Leviticus 18 through 20, a couple thousand years later. So now outside of paradise, there is sin. And at this time, that is, like, that, that is how God populated the earth at the beginning. Later, as humanity got more fallen, more depraved, and the genetics got messed up, that's when God forbid marrying a relative in Leviticus. We have sin within us. We have depravity within us. Commenting on his performance in the gangster drama, Black Mass, actor Johnny Depp said, I found the evil in myself a long time ago. And I've accepted it. We are old friends. Listen, we do not need to accept it. We have the Holy Spirit within us, and we need to fight that fight and let the Holy Spirit reign within us and be more than conquerors. We see God's grace outside of paradise. We see God's grace in Genesis 4, 7. We read that earlier. God provided a way of escape. We see God's grace in Genesis 4, 15 when God protects Cain. And we see God's grace in verses 25 and 26. Let's read that again. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. God gave Adam and Eve another son. The Lord provided more children, and that is God's grace. Now, this is not to say 
that other children can replace a lost child. I cannot imagine the grief of losing a child. Let me repeat that. This is not to say that another child replaces a lost child. No way. However, Eve said it herself. Eve said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. We see God's grace. As I said, I wonder if she was concerned that they were not going to be able to populate the earth. In Genesis 1.28, they were commanded to populate the earth. And now if one son murders another, how are they going to fulfill that commandment to populate the earth? I wonder if Eve might have been concerned, how are they going to have the Messiah, the anointed one? But God provided another child. Adam and Eve knew paradise. Adam and Eve probably wanted to go back. They were the only two to live in paradise, to live without sin. I'm sure they wanted redemption more than anyone. Sin is destructive. Do we recognize that? We do not want sin to have its way. I shared two weeks ago how much I hate snakes. I've shared the only good snake is a dead snake. And we like to watch these shows like on National Geographic. Uh, there's this snake hunter show where this guy for $20 will go get these snakes out of people's houses. I think they're in South Africa. And I'm forgetting the name of the show. But Snake City, Snake City. Go Google it. Look it up on YouTube. It, it, you know, these people get these black mambas in their house. And he, he goes and catches them, you know. And he's wearing like shorts. I'm like, why would you wear shorts if you're trying to catch black mambas? Maybe that's why he has all these tattoos. He's covering up all the scars, you know. And it fascinates me, you know, the way he catches these snakes. But the thing is, and then he, he releases them. Like he does not want to harm the snake. I'm like, chop the head off that snake. Put it out of its misery of being a snake. Anyways, the snake, they always show, they use a little descriptive, put up a fake person and how the venom works. The snake is poisonous. It's so, so poisonous. And do we realize sin is poisonous? It is so, so poisonous. God has redeemed us. We do not want to go back to that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God provides a way of escape. No temptation has overtaken you that is not come to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Are you praying for lighter burdens or a stronger back? Sometimes we think we just want God just to not even make it come. No, God wants to strengthen us. God wants to strengthen us. He wants us to grow closer to him. James 4, 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then it goes on, it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Submit to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A lot of times we want the devil to flee from us, but we don't submit to God. Pray with me. Dear Holy Father, I pray that you would be the center of our life. May you be the center. Lord God, I thank you for providing a way. You provide a way of escape. You provided redemption through Jesus the Messiah. Lord God, I pray that you would help us all submitting to you. You would help us all living for you. You would help us all trusting in you. And Lord God, if there's any here who have not made that first time commitment to you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day to confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe 
in you as the one and only Savior, to trust in you and commit to you. Confess, believe, trust, commit. Lord God, we need your help. Your mercy is more. Our sins are destructive, but your mercy is more. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Oh, Lord God, help us to walk by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.